You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is the Big Picture, a conversation show about our latest impossible mission. We have never been so back than the back <laughs> we are on this very podcast because it's finally time for us to talk about the latest Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the first Mission Impossible movie in five years. How are you feeling, Amanda? Can I give the listeners at home like an insight into your mindset? Sure. Um, which is, I'm just honestly going to read uh, some of the text messages that you <laughs> sent me and Chris Ryan at 9 p.m. last night as you sat through what seems like the trailer for every single movie that could possibly exist before seeing Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 for a second time. So you were thrilled. And so here are some of the things. You sent some questionable CR heads texts that I really don't want to get into. <laughs> You sent um, a highlight reel, or, you know, or some behind-the-scenes movement about uh, Tom Cruise explaining magic, which we'll get into. Napoleon trailer and IMAX, we're back. Even a haunting in Venice looks good from here. Kelly Riley throwing heat. <laughs> I'm not done. Um, and then here's the best, because they're showing every trailer. Um, here's the best one that you sent to Chris. Other than Robert Downey Jr., what Oppenheimer supporting player are you most excited about? This is like the level of texting that Sean is doing from his IMAX seat on a Tuesday night. We are so back! And we're really fucking back! Like, here we are! You know? So get on the train. I am on the train Yeah, with literally, you. figuratively. Yeah. You're fighting on a train like Ethan Even Hunt. Even though I have only gotten to see this movie once. I've I'm gonna, seen it I'm going to go this weekend. Um, but we we are back. We, the movies are back. And we, Sean and Amanda and Bobby, purveyors of Mission Impossible insanity, are absolutely back. In this discussion, we will have a non-spoiler, probably fairly brief segment in which we talk about whether or not we liked this movie. And then after that, there's so many details. Mm-hmm. There's so many convolutions, so many complications. Folks. 
Here's the thing. We are going to demarcate when spoilers start. If you haven't seen the movie and you don't want spoilers, stop listening then. I don't want to hear it. I really don't. You guys have to take some responsibility. Who are you speaking to? To all of the people who whine online afterwards like, hey, you spoiled this. Guys, listen. Let's not straw man the audience. Let's just assume. That they no, know. I just, that like, they I know, want, right? Because I don't want Robert creates wonderful spoiler warnings. Yeah, but I don't want... This is Am a I Robert time. now? Yes. Now We're, that Oppenheimer's coming out, As I'm we have Robert an intelligence community months. discussion, yeah. today you are Robert Wagner. We're really okay. back. And I want everyone to be back. And I don't want to spoil everyone's time. But I also want to say to everyone, you too can be a part of your, you know, managing your experience, you know? I agree. I think we were recording this on a Wednesday. The film opened... On a Tuesday night, it's already made north of $10 million in the United States of America, which is wonderful. It seems on track for an extraordinary performance, which is what we hope and dream for, not necessarily for all Tom Cruise projects, but we love the Mission Impossible movies. And this is a a reunion of the Christopher McQuarrie, Tom Cruise industrial complex. They, of course, have worked together many, many times. This is McQuarrie's ninth collaboration with Cruise. This is his third Mission Impossible film. As writer-director, he's a co-writer of this movie with Eric Jenderson. And it's a really high bar because Fallout, I think, was, for you and I as friends, I think one of our signature movie-going experiences. Yes. Um, We've both, uh, frankly, all three of us have always been huge fans of this series. Um, And I have been greatly anticipating it, but having just revisited all six movies that came before this, they're not all perfect. No. You know, they, they are actually quite flawed in certain places. Even my favorites have flaws. And so we will take a critical eye, I think, to yeah. this new movie. While also, it's pretty easy for me to say, this is about as much fun as I had in a movie in 2023. They all have flaws, but also Fallout, to me, is a masterpiece. Okay. So, and I prepared for seeing Dead Reckoning by rewatching. I started with... Ghost Protocol, which mm-hmm. is still the best of the titles, in my opinion. Okay. Um, and then I did... We have all- activated Ghost Protocol. Yeah, I mean, come it's on. It's stuff. amazing. And then I did all the Macquarie's, and I finished with rewatching Fallout, which I've seen several times since it came out. The night before, I went to see Dead Reckoning. So I was in, like, a really prime, let's jump out of planes... Let's ride motorcycles through European cities. Like, let's, you know, punch people on cliffs. Let's fucking do it. Place. And I, I, I was, like, emotionally ready. And I think that I had an amazing time while also thinking, like, it is really hard to live up to Fallout, in my opinion. Interesting. So I think, I think many people are saying that. Yeah. They're, certainly Fallout was a very high bar. Um, no one thought that that was going to be the conclusive chapter of the story. But... This is an unusual movie franchise in that it kind of feels like it's getting stronger as it goes along. Whether the movies are getting better is debatable, but these movies have always been kind of mid-tier action franchises. These are not right. Harry Potter, Transformers, Marvel. Like this has always been a sturdy action franchise. But as the as the world of movies has has slowly deteriorated around it, and Tom Cruise and Macquarie's incredible success with Top Gun Maverick has created a, a huge sense of anticipation. So we'll talk about whether or not it meets the anticipation right. or not. But this um, this is a direct sequel. Like, these movies are now clearly carrying many characters over from movie to movie. They've created an even a deeper mythology, I would say, without it necessarily being, having the same ickiness of, like, did you watch all 19 movies to get every reference that I think some of our more 
less successful, thornier franchise entertainments have. You know, like watching this movie a second time, I really enjoyed the allusions and small nods to fans, especially of the first film. This film feels very much in conversation with the first Mission Impossible movie. But if you miss those things, it doesn't really matter. It's not really that big yeah. of a deal. Um, they're very kind of, they're small connecting pieces, with the exception of the return of the Eugene Kittredge character. I would say he's really the only person who like you, you kind of want to know who that is. It's helpful if you know who that is when you're watching this movie. Otherwise, you know, it's it's a thrill ride. You know, it's a it's a it's a pop entertainment. And even with all of its load-bearing mythology, right. it doesn't really matter that much. Did you, did you sense that? That they were like, okay, we're seven in now. We're carrying a lot of weight with this franchise. Well, there are a lot of people, you know, that they are trying to fit into one frame. So I think I noticed it just in the deployment of characters and and movie stars and who gets how much screen time. And also the fact that they are even trying to bring in new people and new characters in this um, installment. And so you, you like, you know, I was running numbers a bit in my head and, and there was one point in this movie where I was like, where is Tom Cruise? Mm. So I was conscious less of the, less of it being, you know, some like mission impossible universe. What's the, you know, Easter egg, blah, blah, blah. And more, um, of this is just very expansive at this point. Like you, I could feel the seven, like a tiny bit, yeah. you know? And that's not necessarily a bad thing because the other thing that the seven earns you, as you said, John, is just like absolutely insane set pieces. And they are like doubling down and doubling down or I guess like doubling up in the case of, you mm. know, certain stunts. And that's really fun. And that is at this point why you go see these movies to see Tom Cruise do crazy things. So in that sense, it really, like, they do all stand alone because it's just like, oh, what's what's Tom going to do this time? Yeah, I have an interesting relationship to that and I think we'll talk about it um, and how much that matters to me now versus what yeah. else I'm getting from these movies. I do think that because this is a part one and we have a part two coming, it feels like part two has the potential to be even more outlandish, absurd in terms mm -hmm. of the death-defying approach to the telling the story that they take. And then it's possible that these movies might need a little bit of a reset. Yeah. But we can get to that when we get there. Bob, what did you think of the movie? I had a great time. You know, there are very few things that tickle this specific part of my brain. The silliness of the the spy elements of these movies where they're just ripping off masks. I, I, don't, I don't think this is a spoiler. There's masks in this movie. A lot movie. of yeah, There's masks there in all of these movies. Um, but also just like the safety's off feeling of the way that Tom Cruise approaches Tom Cruise and you know his creative partner in these Christopher McQuarrie approach these movies it's just like who else is going to do this who else is going to try this it's just going to be Tom he's going to be the only one to do it and you know we all have our relationships out on front street with Tom Cruise we we laid that out in in Maverick last summer i just think that if you don't try to over analyze it if you don't try to over literalize the movie all of the time then it's just there are very few things in the movie world right now that are executing as well on what they're trying to do as the Mission Impossible movies and I, I, don't, I don't think this movie is any exception I have very bad news for you which is that I am here to over analyze oh and okay. over literalize no, every right. aspect that's, of this movie but that's part two Bobby and I got to see this movie together which was a this delight is and is again like we had the perfect experience. This is what you want to do. You want to go with a friend who is also psyched about this. Mm -hmm. And you want to, like, be elbowing each other at all of, like, the <laughs> crucial points. And just being like, oh, my God, he's about to do this. And I, I was, like, very tense through probably the last 
30 to 45 minutes of this movie, which is a real testament to this movie. And I like don't think I actually grabbed you at any point, Bobby, but I was like looking at you. You know, it was a, a fun communal experience. We were egging each other on. Also, we saw it um, just in an absolutely beautiful theater, which I would like to see every movie there. Best movie seats that I Thank I've... you to Paramount Pictures. Yeah, yes. thank you to Paramount Pictures for that only. It was it was quite nice, wasn't it, Bobby? It was quite nice. I, I don't often shill for brands, but when I do, it's the Dolby Room. Yeah, you know? it's really... That's a, that's a good point. Um, no, it's a blast. It's an absolute blast. I really loved it a lot. Um, whether or not like it reaches the heights of the highest highs of this series is probably something we will talk about next week mm-hmm. when we dig into the movie a little bit more and we rank all these movies. But today, we're going to focus just on Dead Reckoning Part 1. So just to... I'll, I'll kind of give the rough outline of the plot, and we're kind of nearing closer and closer, I think, to spoiler territory because it's, I, you know, you'd like to see this movie fresh, I think. You don't want to have too much of it spoiled for you other than just getting the, we liked it, it was sick. I think that's the, the review that most casual fans of the franchise are looking for, fair to say? Yeah, grab some friends and go see this movie. In grab the, some big picture listeners. I don't know, guys. Just like do it, you know, let's, that, let's go, get psyched. Um, do, do you think that big picture listeners are like all friends IRL and then all going to the movies together? That would be nice. I have a fear that there are a lot of singles. Well, then what if people got to meet each other, you know? Well, that's even better. Do you think that there is a big pick relationship and or marriage in the out out there in the ether? Um, if so, let us know. I'm not saying we will acknowledge it. I'm not saying I even want to hear about it. You can, <laughs> you can, you can certainly tweet at, at the big pick on Twitter or on threads. Are we on threads? I don't know if we're Are you on, on threads. threads? I, I mean, I activated it. I haven't okay. threaded. I see. I not for me, thread. dog. No, no, I will not be going anywhere. I will sink with the ship. Okay. I will stop sharing my thoughts. I think in that's public. really beautiful. Very Ethan Hunt of you. Um, if you guys go see Mission Impossible together, let us know. That's really okay. cute. Take pictures, like just like yeah. uh, Tom Cruise and Macquarie in front exactly. of the Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah, do standees. it. Why not? In this movie, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team—that stands for Impossible Mission Force, in case mm-hmm. you forgot—are confronted by a mysterious, all-powerful foe known as the Entity. Hunt is forced to consider that nothing can matter more than his mission to engage the entity and 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 win. Ethan tries mm-hmm. to win. In this case, it's a real globe-trotting adventure. We go to a lot of places. And in the Amanda test, I would say this movie passes with flying colors. Would you agree? Unreal. <laughs> I, I mean, there there is one location that has been used at least once this summer, used quote unquote. Because you can reveal it, I think. Rome. Yes. Yeah. There is there is a there is a, a set piece in Rome, and the creators of Mission Impossible were actually in Rome, Italy, making it. And you can tell, and it's very exciting. Uh, I think it would actually be an amazing double feature to watch Fast X before watching this movie, because the movies are on paper attempting to do something extremely similar. And an execution could not be in a more opposite direction. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And in fact, I think the core theme, thesis of this movie feels sort of related to both what's great about Hollywood storytelling and what is a little bit dire and a little scary about Hollywood storytelling. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to unpack that. The movie in general... I, hold I think, on. Go ahead. Go ahead. No one should actually watch Fast X before I watching agree. this movie as a double. Like I just want you. It's summer, I and mean, it'll make you feel even Listen, better about Dead Reckoning Part One. I, Sean, don't you think we we have talked about how people spend their time, and honestly, we have talked about how you spend your time and watching with intention. If 
if I, I you, disagree. I've got, I'm going the other way. I, People I, need to I, watch more movies. Listen, I I saw I saw your letterbox lists. Um, yeah, what do you think? They're pretty good, and Thanks. and and also the Barbie one is just like my brain. You know, that was like pretty amazing. You should have just. I did it in like an hour. No, I know because it's just all the movies. Yeah. Um, Service journalism. If that's what I'm, 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 I'm about it. The only good feedback I ever get is thank you so much for recommending that movie to me. That's yeah. great feedback to get. I'm just saying, I think that Fast X and then Dead Reckoning are a great double feature for a lesson plan for a entire course about summer blockbusters, yes. which is something the you're Sean qualified Fantasy to do. Institute sure, of and being I, good at watching movies. Thank well, you. Well, okay. All right. I'm just also like, I don't know. People are just trying to get through the day, you know? <laughs> they are. They don't they have are. that much time. What you're recommending is like almost six hours of blockbusters. And I don't know. It's a, like, if you're really, if you have that much time, sure. Otherwise, just skip to Dead Reckoning is what I'd say. As we learned in Mission Impossible Fallout, there has never been peace without first a great suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater the peace. That's how I feel about the Fast X MI7 duopoly. Okay. Just think about it. Um, I, I kind of feel like we need to get into spoiler territory here. What do you think? Okay. How many minutes? 15 minutes for people? We, yes, we've been going for we 16 minutes. Okay. What, what do you think, Bob? Have we reached spoiler time? I think so. I mean, first of all, I, uh, there's an interesting discussion to be had about whether or not the trailer spoiled too much for this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you are the type of person that wants a completely pure experience in the movie, now, right about now is about the time that you should, you should pause and watch the film and then come back. Please come back, though, because we, we would appreciate that. We're going to have a very passionate discussion here in three, two, one. Spoiler warning. Okay, critical question. Does Ethan Hunt still have the juice? Yes. You pa- that was a long, long pause. Well, I, I, what you wrote in this outline, can I just read it? Of course. I, it's just... It won't be the last time you read my brilliant musings on this film. <laughs> Ethan still have the juice. This is Sean... Fe- this, I'm quoting Sean Fennessy here, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is actually great writing, and I will not. What hour it. of night was this? I written? have no idea. It's not the writing that's it, the problem. It could have been two a.m. It could have been four p.m. Revisiting these movies has made me realize how subtly but smartly Ethan has in- seemed increasingly vulnerable and non-superheroic, non-superheroic as he ages. He forgets things, misses the mark, loses fights. He is not Superman or Iron Man. He's a man. Yes, he's a man. I mean, like, so is new Jesus until he wasn't, that's, you know? That's, that's exactly like, right. right. Exactly. Like, yeah. But, like, that's where we are, and yes. he's definitely being positioned as, like, Jesus year 33, yeah. you know? Like, did he walk in the desert year 33? I meant to Google that, but he comes back from the desert. He's sad. He knows people are going to betray him. He has the wor- weight of the whole world on his shoulders, and also knows that he's going to ascend to uh, greatness, to larger greatness. I have, I have an important question um, yeah. as you've made this messianic comparison. Yeah. Did Jesus Christ ever get throat punched by a blonde <laughs> female assassin and then live to tell another day? Not in the four canonical gospels. As I have said before, <laughs> I have not read all the non-canonical work. Um, I think a lot of shit happens in them, though, you, I'm told. Your note is fair. Obviously, what what Ethan does is is ridiculous. Like he pulls and, things off but, that are like, and unimaginable. The, and the way that Ethan Hunt is positioned in these last two to three movies. I mean, yes, there are setbacks. 
he fails at missions or whatever. He loses a lot. I mean, he, he, loses he constantly loses the things he's pursuing. He loses arguments. He loses hand to hand fights. He like in this movie in particular. I think here's the here's one thing that really yeah. recommends this movie to me. I think this is the funniest of the Mission Impossible movies. I think it is a very purposeful slapsticky execution yes, of the storytelling. I agree with that. He, much like John Wick Four, which is that's yes. really the movie that you should pair this with if you have six there hours. Is, there is some John Wick anxiety in yes, this major film for correlation, sure. yeah. and I feel like John Wick and I talked about this with the release of Tenet. I think this is very interesting. The Chad Stahelski, Christopher Nolan, Christopher McQuarrie access of one-upsmanship that is going on right now in our best action franchise and action filmmakers that is really cool yes. and exciting. And the the Buster Keaton qualities of the John Wick movies, the last two or three John Wick movies, are very evident in this movie. Totally. There are, the in a couple of the set pieces, they're not straight-faced, you know? They're not. Yeah, they're this, this screwball comedy. I have been talking about this um, for a few weeks. It's really... Oh, it's, I just, I love it. I wish yes. they would make all movies like that because we were talking about, or all action movies like that. We were talking about like Extraction 2, which I just found po-faced. And yeah. you rightly pointed out there is a place for men solemnly punching each other. Um, Thank you for saying I rightly pointed it out. That means a great I, like, deal. There is to you, at least. Um, <laughs> and, but this movie has a real sense of lightness, especially, and and a self-awareness and of being like, and now look what he's going to do, which right. I find really fun. However, that contrasts a little bit with how Ethan Hunt, the person, is positioned in these movies. And this film opens with Ethan getting, quote-unquote, some food delivery in, like, a palace somewhere. But then it's, you know, someone, a new recruit to the IMF, and there are there's a lot of maverick in it, mm-hmm. um, but it's is this very serious and a little bit funny. But I don't know whether Cruz is playing it funny. It's funny that's, of like uh, that's, uh, like here is you know the 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 one good man you know right, imparting right. all the like the only morals that matter to the world at large, and he like steps out of the shadows, and it's like. Here I am. I, I think that the, the, this movie, in addition to those others we talked about, is also in conversation with Top Gun Maverick because it kind totally. of stands in as a commentary on can Tom Cruise alone save mm-hmm. the world, and movies, movies, Hollywood, yeah. modern entertainment, the theatrical experience. Th- that's obviously something that <clears throat> he and Macquarie are kind of like leaning directly into. Sometimes if you overplay that hand, and I would say that that scene is one of the very few scenes in the movie that I couldn't quite understand the intent. I couldn't quite understand what they wanted Ethan to represent there. There are scenes later in the movie where he talks about sort of like working with a team mm-hmm. and caring about the people that you work mm-hmm. with that one I thought were extremely effective and not to be too much of a cornball, but I was like, this is emotionally affecting and actually what makes team-up movies like this really good when you sense the the connectivity and the relationship mm-hmm. between the characters. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of a muddle there. I take your point that it, it's as if Jesus is saying we are all equal and yet and only one of us can walk on There water. is that moment at the end of Fallout and I think also in Rogue Nation. There's always one moment where it's like, Ethan, you are the only person who understands morality and the only person mm-hmm. who can save the world. And it's because when you love one person, you love everyone or whatever, you know? It's and like, beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> like that's what it's like. There's I like the just, whatever at the end. Yeah, that was really yeah, what like, topped it off. I mean, because they do stick out a little bit. There is this moment where it's like, we need to like saint 
Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt for a moment before, you know, he goes out and and kills people or whatever. Well, let's use that as an opportunity to springboard into the conversation about like what this movie is actually about, what okay. the villain of the movie is, how they've that. constructed this new enemy for this incredibly moral secret super spy agent figure. In the past, we've seen arms dealers and connectors, people who are interested in money. Mm-hmm. We've seen people who are uh, nuclear theorists, game theorists, who are who just want to play out the logical endpoint of destruction. We've seen people who just crave world power, you know, who just want to run everything. We've never seen anything quite like this, but I would say it's quite timely mm-hmm. that Macquarie and Cruz and Co. have landed on what is known as the entity, which is essentially artificial intelligence. And the opening of this movie we are set on a Russian submarine in a sequence that is very reminiscent of some 90s thrillers, The Hunt for right. October, Crimson Tide. They all came to mind as I was watching this also, U571. when Bobby and I saw it, I was like, oh, this is, it was a, a week after Submersible. And I was like, this is a, a bit too soon. Yes. But anyway, it, it is it is relevant. Very, very timely. Um, and in that sequence, we see this submarine essentially kind of get tricked by its own systems into believing it is under attack. And then effectively it is rendered inoperable and destroyed by what we learn is the sort of mainframe, the source code of artificial intelligence that exists inside of this submarine called the Sevastopol. And it's it's an unusual sequence because it doesn't feature any of our core characters. It's not a mission. It's not a kind of like breathtaking, wow, here we go in another spy movie kind of feeling. It's a, it's a pretty hard shift, actually, if you go back and look at the other yes. six films. And so it's disorienting. You know, we know now that this movie is two movies, and we know that this there was a, a complication in the production, in part because of uh, COVID-19 and stops and starts and the expense. Thank you. I said the entire name of the strain <laughs> of the virus. Uh, and It would be, be like Tom Cruise to be like, I have discovered COVID-22 <laughs> and also defeated it. Um, it's, it's, it's still in play, I would say. Nevertheless, this- we are the gold standard. <laughs> um, this sequence, I think, kind of goes out of its way to explain and create a sense of fear amongst the audience about what this could be and what this could do. Like, this is the kind of thing that is bigger than Philip Seymour Hoffman just trying to acquire the rabbit's foot in Mission Impossible 3. This is something that can can destroy a submarine in a matter of minutes. It is something that can take over the world very quickly. Now, obviously, in Hollywood, AI is also a topic of much debate. It Mm -hmm. is a critical issue in the writer's strike. It's a critical issue in the negotiations with SAG-AFTRA. I don't know what the results of that will be, though. By the end of this week, we could have a strike um, for the actors. So that doesn't feel like a mistake. It feels actually quite clear that the creators of the movie are using something that is very much in the culture to try to render Ethan and co. um, to neuter them, you know, to take away the kind of gadgetry and the technological power that is a signature of this franchise and 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 make them and neutralize them mm-hmm. completely. Now, I have like a lot of feelings about the way that they've done this and whether it works or not. Um, I really liked it, especially watching it a second time when I felt like I had a better sense of what Macquarie is really trying to say with this movie. And these movies don't need to have a good message to matter to me. I think what Bob, how Bobby explained it was perfect. Like it's just you can just turn your brain off and just rock out and love it. But in this case, I loved that as usual with Macquarie, there's always a little something else going on here. But I think there's also a little bit of AI fatigue in the culture, too. So I, what did you think of the way that this movie has been framed with that? My issue is in the execution. I, you know, I don't mind the, the idea and I like having ideas, but I just, I, it, it was the actual 
narrative story was sort of hogwash, I you know, and I found it a little confusing. I didn't totally understand what they were fighting. I, I mean, I I did. I was like, oh, okay, I'm great. So it's to explain it it's to you AI. No, I no, I get it, but it's both like the highest stakes and almost no stakes mm-hmm. at all. And I think they have a bit of trouble maintaining the stakes and maintaining this like all powerful entity, literally, um, as like a plausible enemy for. Ethan Hunt and for, but, and really just for Ethan because he's going to save the world single handedly, mm-hmm. as we previously discussed. And it's like they kind of have to bend over backwards a few times to be like, well, the entity already knows what you're going to do. But so then if you don't do it, then it won't know. But then it also is so smart that it will know. So like it's, it, it just the, the point by point, you know, machinations of it didn't totally add up for me. I I liked that aspect of it specifically because it speaks to a very traditional um, action movie and spy movie trope, which is fate versus choice. And that's ultimately what like the question of AI is, is like, is everything predictive and predictable? And I think part of the reason why it works is it's it's critical to these kinds of movies because, and I've been hearing Bill say this on the rewatchables a lot. I heard him talk about it on the time, a time to kill where he's like, we know what the tropes of these movies are. Actually, I think AI could do this. I think they could say, I'm not saying it would be good, but they could say, you need to have a scene where this happens, you need to have a yeah. scene where this happens, you need to have a scene where this happens, and that could be modern entertainment. But in these movies specifically, this, this one in particular feels like an explicit rejection of the algorithm. It's like a, a screed against like computerized content because if you don't have human beings there, you can have all the component parts. In this movie, we have a runaway train. We have an incredible death-defying motorcycle jump. We have hand-to-hand combat. We have a critical character death. We have Ethan Hunt triumphing, but also still being low. We have this ominous, world-threatening force. All that stuff is in the, in the very blood, the DNA of every Mission Impossible movie. So it's not like this movie is this wowzer of originality. But the very specific execution of every single thing and the decisions that are made by the human beings that make it is what makes it cool to me, is what makes it fun and what makes it better to me. And I, that was why I yeah. intoned Fast X. Because I'm like, you, humans made that too, okay, but that felt way more formulaic in a way that hurt it. It's way, way better than Fast X. I like, Fast X isn't even in the conversation to me and uh, about this. I, the other thing that you, the the entity and that fate versus choice and the, you know, what are we going to do? And even a little bit like the development of Ethan Hunt over these last few movies as this, you know, the only good man and this messianic figure is that it's less silly. And it there are really like exhilarating, like a billion moments in this franchise. But all of the framework is a little more solemn. Mm-hmm. And a little... Of this, you think? I, I felt so. And I felt that... All of the other villains and MacGuffins are the fate of the world, sure, but in a slightly bondish, like this person needs a list and yes, this person, no. there is. I, that's, and, that's and, interesting. And and the tone has been shifting as the movies go on and as Cruz and Ethan Hunt pursue this sort of messianic figure as like the only person who can save the world. But I found uh, some of the the narrative wrapping like just a little too serious to to allow for the you know vivacious like 
kind of absurd, kind of extremely transporting action and um, just experience that I expect from Mission Impossible movies. I wonder if that is a a testimony to who they use as a kind of stand-ins for the entity. And we should talk about the characters. There are a lot of characters, a lot of new faces and a lot of old faces that are in this movie. Um, To me, uh, Solomon Lane from the previous two films was as kind of serious and dour a villain as this series has ever had. So I, I don't think I struggled with that as much. Um, and I think his his anarchic vision of the intelligence community and its future, I felt like was bordering on the edge of like, okay, man, we get it. Like you have, you know, nothing matters. Like, the, and that itself is kind of a, like a problematic stakes territory. I think that in general, these movies, if you take a lot of that stuff too seriously, you might start to feel like there yeah. are no stakes. Um so maybe it's just recency bias, but just having seen it again a second time, I felt like, oh, this kind of locks in with where like every villain is. And most of the other villains are pretty bad, honestly. And when you go back and rewatch these yeah. movies, the villain in two is bad. Philip Seymour Hoffman is amazing in three, but I, I don't really care about that guy. I don't know anything about that guy. We have no idea what it is he wants and why it matters other than he just wants money and barely even that. So anyway, my point is more like, this movie at least is using its villain to try to say something more discreet about what's happening in the world, which I liked. But it does have to use two people in Isai Morales and Palm Clementif to like be these kind of avatars of what the quote-unquote entity wants. And I guess whether or not they work is an interesting question. They use Isai Morales' character, um, Gabriel, to kind of retcon the Ethan Hunt story in what I think is a pretty big swing that didn't totally work for me. This is the one thing that really didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, which is to say we see these flashbacks early on in the movie where uh, Morales's character is seen killing an agent. I believe it's an agent named uh, Maria, who is in some has some sort of personal and professional relationship to Ethan Hunt. Hunt has been blamed for that death, which then leads to the Impossible Mission Force confronting him and saying, "You're either going to jail or you're joining this secret team and becoming a ghost." Now, I don't think we ever heard that before. No. I don't think we knew what the origin of Ethan was in that specific way. And so we hear the voice of Henry Cherney, the great actor who plays Kittredge in the first film, almost explaining how he found himself in this position in the first place and being posed with new missions. And Morales' character, 30 years later, where he has been, I have no idea what he's been doing. I don't know. He's clearly been creating some intimate relationship with the entity so that he can then become its avatar. He's been doing the TB12 method because he hasn't <laughs> aged a day, baby. He, he, he looks very good. He, it, Morales is... Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a great actor. And I, I mentioned this to you and Chris, I think, recently, but I had read that it, this part, I think, was originally planned to be Nicholas Holt. And that has kind of scrambled my brain yeah, a little bit no, as I you, watch it. You mentioned it to me and Bobby because Bobby rightly immediately was like, oh, so it would be like a John Wick for Pennywise situation, yes. which is exactly right. I think that that's a good call. And that might have given this a different Bill flavor. Bill Skarsgård, I'm sorry. Yes. Well, yeah. Pennywise, that's well, he played Pennywise. Yeah. That's fair. Um, it's kind of a clownish villain performance in John Wick 4. I loved it. Yeah. But it would be... I loved re- it, too. It, it would kind of be beyond homage and just kind of trying to recreate. And that's a it's a challenge that Morales yeah. has in the character where it's sort of like, what are his motivations? Are they merely to be the aide-de-camp to an all-powerful artificial intelligence? That's kind of a weird character. <laughs> I'm not totally sure I understand that. I, I, I definitely didn't. But at some point, I sort of turned... I've only seen it once. So, and I am going to try to see it again this weekend. But... I kind of turned off trying to understand his motivation, uh, which is maybe a little bit about how I watch these movies. I'm in the Bobby camp of like at some point, I'm just like, ride your motorcycle fast, my guy. 
Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, and the movie kind of like, is it's very clear to identify the act structure of these movies because yeah. they are dotted specifically with big set piece and then expository emotional conversation about what just happened. Right. Big set piece, the same. Right. That goes through a typical three-act structure. The the kind of like, I don't know if the major flaw of this movie, but the thing that doesn't work for me ultimately is sort of like, who is Gabriel? Did we have to make Gabriel a part of Ethan's past to create an emotional lineage to make the entity battle make any sense? Like the, the movie kind of hinges on that in some ways. And but on the other hand, I'm not totally sure I needed it because I have these huge relationships to Ilsa Faust, who we'll talk about, who has a huge right. arc in this movie, to the introduction of Grace, who's played by Haley Atwell, and her relationship to Ethan and to um and to Phineas Freak, Luther, you know, and to and to Simon Pegg's character and this new world that they're creating. So there are a lot of spinning plates going on here, in addition to introducing them and Palm Clementif, who is this sort of like classical, you know, um, like Jaws from the James Bond movies, like the muscle, you know, she's really like the badass of the movie and she is fucking amazing in this movie. Um, But that is the one thing as I look back on it, it wasn't the AI to me, it was how AI is represented in human form. It was just a tall task. I don't know. Which is sort of what I'm saying with a a bit more uh, reference to the plot, which is good. It was it was not the idea of the AI taking over. The, I mean, that has, that's a story that has worked for decades, um, and I think will continue to. But it was just kind of muddled in execution. And there was, like, a lot going on, and I didn't understand all of the choices that they made. And also, frankly, it felt like some of the choices that they made were in order to provide two movies' worth of story mm-hmm. instead of one. And I felt the filler. I felt the extension. Um, I felt the way that they wanted to bring in more people to populate those, like, I guess, six to seven hours of of film. And so they had to make up these backstories. And, you know, I just, it felt a little bloated and also unresolved because that's the other thing. It is a part one. And we knew that. And yeah. it, um, and everyone knows that. But it just kind of, I don't know, it's never a good sign when you can't end something. And so you have to create more room. Yeah, I don't know where the decision was made there. What do you think, Bob? I do agree with Amanda that this film feels emotionally different as it concludes itself than than the other ones, which Definitely. is a, an, a feeling that I had to adjust to after watching it in comparison to the first six, where it's like, okay, it's going to be a new world by the by the next time we see this this character and these characters and and, and this movie franchise, and that's not the case for this one. It's going to be like right where we left off. I have to assume because there's a lot of things that are that are actively in progress at the end of this movie. I think that where the AI story worked for me, I, I agree with some of what Amanda's saying, and I, I definitely agree that the uh, Isai Morales like emotional backstory to this was like the more underbaked part of the movie. It really is just like two flashbacks, and then they use that sort of emotional resonance to make uh, Ethan Hunt's character feel bad when he's watching the other people around him lose, because he can't... Not only does he have to win all of the time, or, or does he feel the pressure to win all the time, he's feeling the pressure to help everyone around him also win all of the time. And so I do think that that felt a little bit shoehorned in there at moments during the movie, but the AI being so like world dominating and controlling so much of the tech that have, that has come to dictate how they run these missions, I thought shrunk the movie in like an actually enjoyable way because they had to rebuild, you know, different systems that are, that are working on analog. They had to really shrink down the team so that it's just, you know, the people that he trusts using technology that he now trusts that the AI can't touch. And so I thought that that made it 
it, it at least signaled to me that 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 this is the beginning of sort of a reset to this franchise. It's like we've already gone as big as big gets, and now if conversely we're going to actually try to boomerang all the way back down to the more, as you said, Sean, like the more conversational with Mission Impossible one version of a story where it's like it's this is just a really small cast of like theatrical characters with each other in this world using their practical brains, and Ethan Hunt is just one of those people who still can do that. You know, still has the wherewithal and the wit and the bravery to kind of do some of these non-gadget related things like jump off of a cliff and try to land on a moving train. No, it's 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 true. And I think that that itself is a commentary that's baked into the movie, which is that this is a franchise that certainly uses CGI, but that prides itself on doing things practically. So taking the gadgets away is them saying, hey, you really mm-hmm. did jump off of that cliff on a motorcycle while wearing a parachute. Yeah. You know, at the, in, at the beginning of uh, Mission Impossible 5, he's hanging from a plane. He may be harnessed to the plane, but, but he's, he's hanging, hanging from, from the it. plane. Yeah. And, you know, many, John Wick does something very similar. John Wick uses CGI very elegantly, but they also have this incredible hand to hand combat choreography. You know, I'm obviously on the record as preferring that, but I like when it's kind of, it can be self referential and identify that. I did want to talk a little bit about the relationship to the first movie, though, too, because I think that they could have gotten us there in terms of Ethan's origins without necessarily completely tying it to the AI aspect of the storytelling. I think there's, like, um, mechanical choices that are made. There are a lot of Dutch angles in this movie. Mm-hmm. The way that the film is kind of constantly trying to disorient you by calling back to what Brian De Palma did in the first film. And... Some might say it's a little overkill in the Dutch angles. I enjoyed it. Um, it's very overt, yeah, trying to remind us of the first movie. But there's a battle on top of a train, just like there is in the first movie. We get references to Alana and her relationship to Max, and then Kittredge's relationship to Max, who's portrayed by Vanessa Redgrave in the first movie. Um, we also see like them coming together. We see Alana and Kittredge coming together on a train, just as Kittredge and, and Max did so many years ago. Um, even the introduction of Grace to the team feels like, you know, the 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 genius of the first movie, right, is mm-hmm. that it's a team movie, but then the whole team dies in the first 20 minutes, and then right. he has to rebuild the team, and then that's where we get Ving Rhames, and that's where we get characters going on and on. So I like that the movie wants to remind people that they've been doing these movies for almost 30 years, and that Ethan is still a guy. He's a guy who came from a place. He is messianic right. in many ways. He also just has an incredibly bad track record of being interested in women and then them... Um, you know, and there's that. meeting some tough ends, which is why the new backstory is so bizarre. Because I'm like, there are 15 other women that you could have picked. But what's so, you're right about that. But what's so funny about that is there's that great scene in the nightclub in the second act of the movie where Gabriel and Grace are talking. And he basically explains mm-hmm. to Grace what you just said, mm-hmm. which is that he has this awful track record. Yeah. Which is also about to continue with, right. with the Ilsa character. But also, I mean, Tom Cruise's relationship to his female co-stars, Tom Cruise's relationship no, to I women know. in the world it's, I mean, it's, is so complex. It really it is knowing. Very. And sort of funny. And kind of eerie. Yeah, it's pretty strange. It's the why are there so many Taylor Swift breakup songs of action movie franchises? <laughs> totally. I mean, that's a great call because I really liked that they put that in the movie. Now, I, I wish that, I can't recall if it's Maria or Maria, I wish that there was that was just deepened. Like I think the way that you put it, Bob, is right, which is just they shoehorn something in yeah. to give you the emotional access point. You couldn't use Michelle Monaghan in that spot. Could you have used Emmanuel Bear? Yeah, you know, someone oh like God, that. So beautiful. She's I rewatched great. that yeah, last night. She's yeah, wonderful. I'm not sure who you could have used, but obviously many women have died because Ethan tried to make them not die. Right. And 
as I watched Haley Atwell in this movie, I was like, is she going to die at some point? I hope not. I really I just enjoy her. Um, speaking of which, should we, shall we talk about mm-hmm. the returning and, and new characters to the film? Uh, Haley Atwell is, is the big addition. She plays Grace, who is a professional pickpocket, con woman, thief, grifter. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely loved her. I would marry Haley Atwell <laughs> if I were not already uh, legally married to someone else. I, I have been just an absolutely giant fan of her for many years, including if you have not seen the remake of Howard's End with Haley Atwell and Very Matthew good. McFadden, like, go out. She is incandescent. Anyway, she gets to um, do some hijinks with Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, and they have they have chemistry. And they, they have, and it is like a a screwball one-upsmanship, just extremely funny, and they're allowed to have fun with it in both of their set pieces. And I think she's wonderful. I I am concerned about her fate in 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 part two, but mm-hmm. you know, I had a great time with her in this one. I like the way that she is for the majority of the film a kind of unwilling participant, and in fact, it's pure cat and mouse between yeah. them. And you know, this creates an opportunity. There's an incredible set piece. There's not an action scene. That is not even really a chase scene, though it is sort of a chase scene. Set in the Abu Dhabi airport. Mm-hmm. Which upon seeing this movie a second time, I was like, this is magical movie making. Because of how much cutting and how much orchestration is needed to pull off a sequence like that and not be confused. That's where we meet Grace. We learn that she is... We haven't discussed the cruciform key. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm I'm delighted to discuss with you now. One, I loved the cruciform key as the MacGuffin of this movie. I, I mean, no matter just... how you feel about AI, AI needing a key, a two-pieced key that syncs together with what are called dragon eggs in the movie to indicate that these are in fact the two pieces that deserve each other. And the that idea opens a... the movie at the bottom of the ocean yes. as well. Brilliant stuff. The key itself is in great demand by the intelligence community of the United States, by world powers, by rebel leaders. Those who know what it is are desperately after it. Gabriel, of course, as well, is desperately after it. Grace doesn't really know what it is, but she's just really good at taking things off people's bodies and them not knowing that they've taken it. And so you have this kind of fascinating chase sequence where Ethan wants it because he's going to sell it to, to, to somebody who's a broker and then follow the broker onto a flight so then he can go to the person who knows what the key does. No one else really knows what the key, like the IMF doesn't know what the key does. They just know that it has a great power. There's a moment when Are Grace- you getting any grail undertones? From the key? Yeah. I was just wondering, you know? Um, that's an interesting question. You you've really got Jesus on the brain. Are it's literally about- a cruciform. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about anyway? What is that? <laughs> yeah. I just do you know how Jesus died? I, 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 I do. I'm just I do. letting I you know what's coming in part two. It's right there on the Yeah, of course. What do you mean? What are you what are you saying? Oh, that I think that. Ethan will get the key and go under the water to get the submarine and yeah, yeah, shut yeah. down AI, but he will die saving the world. Oh. Because it's a, it, like he's he will have literally with the crucifix. I no, mean, I don't think so. Okay. Well, y- you could be right, but I don't I think mean, so. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe they will depart from the Bible. I think that like they could be like, surprise. Were there but, submarines in the Bible? No. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not in the four gospels that I know that I have read. And studied. 
It's time for me to write a new New Testament about submarines. Uh, that's an <laughs> I think Chris theory. already wrote that, actually. I, yeah, just, <laughs> Bob, do you think that? Do you think Ethan Hunt is going to die in part two? I haven't thought that hard about it. I don't want to commit either way. Okay. I, I just, I, well, I'm just like, it's... Why would Tom Cruise give up this franchise? <laughs> that would be crazy. I mean, I agree, and it seems very unlike Tom Cruise. Um, and in fact, you know, he didn't die in Maverick. Yeah, uh, I don't think he's going to die. No, I don't either. But it, I mean, it, it is right there in the naming of the of the very stupid key and the analog Why thing. On the that, key? I mean, it's really dumb. That's what's so great about it is it's a, a physical object it's that a phys- controls. I know, physical media th- uh, that will. The, phys- <laughs> the human form controls technology. And if we know enough and accept that we need to not turn ourselves over to it too much, oh, that's a great right. idea. I can't believe you don't like that. I think it's, it's a great idea in basic form that as it's like teased out and put into the reality of the movie seemed a little silly to me. That's all. Wow. I can't believe you're negging Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I told you that I felt that some of the setup narratively was kind of hogwash, but that's okay. I still had a great time. Here's another thing that I don't like. Sorry. I'm sorry to bring negativity, but it's obviously setting up like a major underwater uh, Mm -hmm. action sequence in Part 2, and I'm sure that Tom Cruise is going to like smash Kate Winslet's record for the longest (laughs) underwater like breath hold and I think that's awesome but I don't find underwater action sequences to be as exciting Mm -hmm. as ones on land and I say that as a great lover of the ocean let's try to focus on the text we have so many great things but I mean it's very clearly setting up with maybe are you trying to outwit Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise no, I'm not. But, you know, they like to um, perform death-defying events um, in air, land, and sea. That's you true. know, and I'm saying that I prefer air and land to sea. There hasn't been a ton of sea in the Mission Impossible Well, there films. was, there's the one, is it Rogue Nation, where he held his breath for a really long time? Yes, although that was swimming. not in a, in a it's, natural body of water. Sure, but even there, I was like, all right, okay, okay. You didn't okay. like that. No, I, I, I find it... Uh, like stressful but also have I cast the right person for this podcast are you sure you like these movies I love these okay. movies I like all the rest of them I'm, I'm saying I like ch- I have preferences <laughs> air number one I think for me okay land this explains your fallout halo jump yeah uh, you know. number two mm-hmm. and C number three well I'm glad you I'm glad you're saying this actually because one thing that this movie does is I do think that it is reaching a kind of logical endpoint to be like, we've had one of these before. And one of the reasons why they shift the tone of some of the action sequences is because they're like, we've done a long car chase with a lot of crazy police cars and someone trying it's to kill so Ethan. Sick. I but loved in, it. in this one, that they've, that's they've, a they've land into it. a sea, but they're above the, I guess that's a river that he jumps into at the end of the Paris chase and they catch him in the boat. On the sun, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But you're, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. not saying not in this film. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. But oh, I thought you were referencing like we've done this crazy car chase. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So in this, yeah. movie, in this movie, you know, we get this handcuff sequence between Grace and God, it's Ethan so Hunt. Good. It's I mean, this is the best. Where they're this is incredible. They're tied to each other and they're trying to escape. You know, <laughs> we haven't talked about Shea Wiggum and Greg Tarzan Davis, the two. I guess they're FBI agents, CIA agents. It's unclear what what who they represent in the intelligence community. They're chasing him. The Italian police forces are chasing them. Um, and then, of course, uh, Gabriel and his henchmen and Palm Clementif are chasing uh, the two of them. And at first, they are driving around in, I think, a BMW that's had its doors ripped off. And eventually, they have to get out of that car. And they find a safe car. And that safe car 
is a 1980s Fiat, yellow. Mm -hmm. Yes. And (laughs) with an incredible dashboard driving circumstance. And the chase sequence that, that transpires here is pure silent comedy. I mean, it's just an amazing physical performance. The other thing that I thought of while I was watching this movie that I really liked about it as a as like a filmmaking decision is much like silent comedy and much like Sergio Leone westerns. It's a movie of close-ups. Yes. It's a movie of people's faces saying things to each other without using words. And there are a handful of other sequences, the nightclub sequence in particular, where the characters, there's very little dialogue, but it's quick cutting to look at the sneer that Vanessa Kirby can give or the kind of like knowing smirk that you can get from Haley Atwell. Right. This sequence too, you know. Or Hale- the, oh my God, now I have to do this. Right, from Haley Atwell. Yeah, yes. but also like, I'm just going for it. Yes, huge like- sequences where she has to drive, but he's grabbing the wheel and he's telling her what to do and then they're shifting gears. It's just, it's thrilling. It's super funny. It's really exciting. You never once for a second are like, oh wow, they're so screwed, they're going to die. It's no. we're only an hour into the movie. Right. But nevertheless, you're you're swept away by it. And you're like, what are they going to hit? And how are, I think they incorporate the the actual city of Rome very well and the and the landmarks that, you know, and it, I'm I'm sure that there's like a lot of cutting and whatever involved in it, but it looks realer than some other movies not to be named. Um and is just very funny. It's it, it genuinely is funny. It it and it's really thrilling because the editing is so sharp, you know, and the storytelling is so clear on sequences like this. I sound like a broken record. I'm like, this is hard to do. Yeah. Like, you oh, really no. have this, to I'm, give it up to these people that they are the absolute best at doing this kind of thing. We see every movie that comes out. So you see every action sequence mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, they right. ran out of time. They ran out of money. I was bored. Yeah. They didn't fully conceive it when they went pushed forward on executing it. These movies are something different. They are working overtime to make sequences like this really, really work because they're trying to thrill audiences and they are effective. So even if you are struggling with the way that they're telling the, the narrative of the story. Right. It doesn't, you still it doesn't get matter. This. That's you still the thing. It doesn't matter. Wait, did we skip past Tom Cruise doing magic? Uh, yeah, we did. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> Come on, man. This was um, probably the single best thing that's happened to me this year <laughs> was while seducing Haley Atwell, Tom Cruise did close-up magic. Yes. And I I start, almost started crying because <laughs> I love close-up magic so much. And I'm just the same way that when I watch a movie and I'm like, holy shit. Like, I that's so cool how they did that. That pure emotional mm-hmm. expression that is so rare for me. You will see the same expression if you see me watching close-up magic, which I just greatly enjoy. And How often are you seeking out close-up magic? Well, not your... very often because sure. you have to see it in person. Like, watching it on YouTube doesn't really have the, quite the same experience. Mm-hmm. But if you've then been you to the Magic it on Castle— film. I did on, in IMAX done by a movie star who I didn't know could do it. You know, like I'm not rewatching David Blaine clips on YouTube. Okay. But. Well, I mean, ex- aside from the special with Harrison Ford. Yes, but that's yeah. not quite for the magic. That's sure. for the magic of Ford's facial expressions. <laughs> um, but if you, I, I've been to the Magic Castle many times mm-hmm. over the years and I love it and I think it's really fun. Now, I know that this is major loser behavior. No, like, no, magic no, is no. Cool. I think it's charming. I don't think magic is cool. I just like it. And I think that the world is so dumb and cynical and annoying, and I, I hate it. I thought it was so completely— It's nice that we have something like it that. Was, it was incredibly delightful in an airport lounge, and these two people meet, and this is their meet-cute, is Tom Cruise learning how to do actual practical magic. And the, the behind-the-scenes clip of him explaining <laughs> that he couldn't get it right and Macquarie being like, I can do your hand, I can do your hand, is, is very charming. It's so cool. Um, I really enjoyed that part. One of the brilliant conceits of those two characters and how they meet, but also how they interact like in the car chase when they're handcuffed to each other is that it's pretty, it's pretty rare in these movies, in this franchise, where uh, Ethan Hunt is interacting with a civilian who also has like a set of skills that 
maybe he doesn't have yet. Like the the thievery, the magic, like that sort of thing. And so he continue he keeps like underestimating her at some things and overestimating her at other things. And it just mm. yes. is hilarious in how it plays out. Like he assumes that she's gonna know how to drive. She's like an international thief, you know, and she sucks at driving. Right. And that leads to a lot of hijinks. No, Bobby, that's a great point. Yeah, that she's he assumes a that she's not gonna yeah. he assumes that she's not gonna get out of the handcuffs and handcuff him to the the shifter. And she does. And that's how she gets away. So it's just like keeps like subverting your own expectations of how it's going to go because usually Ethan Hunt can handle a person like this but she is kind of a wild card to him and this is the first character that they've introduced in this series in a long time who is a civilian as Amanda said you know when we meet Ilsa Faust she is a disavowed MI6 agent who is a part of the syndicate. I mean, she is a killer. She right. is a trained assassin. You know, we, we meet Vanessa Kirby. She is a internationally renowned arms dealer, deal maker, yeah, CIA she's, plant. She's not a dealer. She's a matchmaker. Magic, she introduces people, okay? As she says in every scene that she's in, um, you know? She's wonderful. We will get to that. Vanessa she Kirby, I love on you. One. Um, is it possible for you and I both to get married to both well, Haley Atwell, Atwell and, and Vanessa, Vanessa Kirby. Kirby. I actually was thinking about that. As that would be I, exciting yeah. for both of us. I don't Very think special. in California. Um, yeah. But, oh, that's too bad. We'll have to move to Abu Dhabi and get married in the airport. Okay. Um, the the handcuff tra- car chase sequence is wonderful. The the airport sequence is wonderful. We we neglected to mention the DC community intelligence scene, which is a scene oh, that happens in all of these movies. Yeah, but it's really good. We've got all these forces it's uh, it's Charles Parnell, Rob Delaney, and Dira Varma, and Carrie Elwes walk into a bar, and then green smoke explodes. It's fucking awesome. Super funny. They use Rob Delaney. It's like it's a, really, a, a really Navy good. Admiral. Awesome. Uh, um, awesome. And I was very moved to see Charles Parnell there again because yes. you know that just came from Maverick, and he's wonderful at Maverick. He's great in this. I love to see Greg Tarzan Davis and Parnell in this movie after having what it was clearly a good experience with those yeah, guys yeah, yeah. on Maverick. Put. Charles Parnell in every single movie. That's He's my so pitch good. to save Hollywood. He was great in Barry this year, too. He's on a run right now. He was actually at my screening, of oh. my first screening of the movie, Parnell. Um, that scene is a lot of fun, and it's our first... Uh, there was audible gasps and applause when the green smoke hit, and we saw the mask reveal that it was Ethan Hunt. Um, that is really, like, to me, that's what this franchise is, is that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, it's certainly to the death-defying stunts, but that's evolved over time. And I will say, that scene is also when Carrie Ellis is getting briefed. Is he the, he's the head of... He's the director of national intelligence. Sure. The DNI. As am I. And um, he is getting briefed about the entity. And it is like that classics exposition dump. But um, because you have Rob Delaney and Charles Parnell and all of these people, and the way that it's written, the absurdity of the setup is palpable in that one. It's, and I, it's, it's and on the, purpose, the, right? The, yeah, and it is. And I think the tone is... Is exactly right. And I think as it becomes more about like the, you know, the fate of the world and Ethan's soul and whatnot, it just gets a little, you know, more solemn. But that is very funny. When it's Rob Delaney delivering it, it's like, Mr. Director, sir, we're fucked. (laughs) We don't stand a chance. You know, like he has such a funny, like him trying to be serious when you know that he is also so funny. is like really genius stuff. I I don't know if this is good acting or bad acting, but I was, I could only see him in a scene from Catastrophe while reading yeah. Mission Impossible dialogue, you know, like I, he just, he is a very d- distinct flavor. And so I think the that's insert great him is great. Yeah. Uh, I think that that scene is, in, is, is critical, obviously, because, you know, everyone is listening at this point has seen the movie. Both Carrie Elwes's character and uh, Henry Turney's Eugene Kittredge are in on this plot and are actually evil. And mm-hmm. this is, a, once again, I think another not so subtle Macquarie note that it's yeah. like, 
it's it's human beings who fucked us with this AI stuff. You know, it's people in power who sought more power who have been pushing these agendas. That feels yeah very uh, yes. uncomplicated. And to me, it actually weirdly depressurized, I think, some of this messianic, oh my God, the fate of the world stuff. Because it was like, once again, it's just kind of a jab at the fact that whether or not you buy into AI as the critical, scary monster of this movie, right. it's really the humans who are terrible. It's Gabriel who's terrible. It's the DNI who's terrible. It's the head of the CIA who's terrible. And if we didn't have those people making selfish, vainglorious decisions, we wouldn't be in this position in the first place, which I think is really the overriding theme of all of the Mission Impossible movies is Ethan's like, I'm just trying to protect people and especially protect my friends. And everybody just keeps doing this dumb shit. And I, now I got to jump off a mountain. Right. And it's just, a, it's just a great concept for a movie. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. And you can't have it if you don't have this classic exposition, yeah. as you said. Can I say so that's something that works really well for the Ethan Hunt character? It's like he obviously had the opportunity to rise up the ranks of the IMF or rise up the ranks of whatever the national security world. Yeah. But he Much chooses like not Pete to Mitchell. because like, exactly. It's very resonant with, the, with, uh, with Maverick because... He knows where his talent is concentrated and he'd like to keep doing that. You know, he doesn't want to become a coach. He wants to be a player. And I like that. I like the, that about it. It makes the Ethan Hunt character like he's not really like human. Come like, come on. Like yeah, his domestic not. life no, and like no. the first no. couple movies, you're like, I don't know if I believe that he's cracking a Heineken with his pals at this dinner party. However, <laughs> I do think I, this up. I, 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 I do relate to, you know, I, I relate to having a skill that you know that you're good at and wanting to keep doing it. Well, th that that leads to, I think, a critical conversation around this movie, mm -hmm. which is really who is Ethan Hunt? You know, is he super into Warcraft? You know, like, is he uh, is he on TikTok? You know, like, is he what kind of food does mm -hmm. he like? You know, is he a is he a jack in the box guy? Like, what do we think he's in? I have no idea. But what I do know, or at least I'm pretty sure I know, is that he and Ilsa Faust bang in this movie. And <laughs> okay. that was not something I saw coming. Yeah. And the first time I saw it, I was like, oh fuck, Elsa's dead. As soon as they <laughs> as soon as they she wrapped her arms around him as in Venice. As, so yeah, in the skyline. On, I was like, Elsa, no. <laughs> <laughs> they're on the balcony looking out over beautiful Venice, and she says, I've never been to Venice before. <laughs> And everyone, I'm so announced that I am going to Venice for the first time at the end of the summer. And Bobby, that is one of the times I elbowed you. And I was like, it me. Here yes. we go. Venice yes. looked absolutely beautiful. Uh, that was great. I loved that. Did you did you have a sense at that point, given that, you know, we don't actually see them have sex. In fact, I thought Manola Dargis very cleverly noted right. that the chase scene yes. with Haley Atwell is the closest that these movies actually get to a sex scene. But we do see them riding in a gondola shortly thereafter, holding hands right before the mission to the nightclub. Okay. It seemed pretty overt. Yeah, I think they were trying for it. I, I would agree with uh, Manola Dargis that the sexual chemistry between Grace and Ethan is way more evident. And so I do mm. think, I yes, I would say that the filmmaking choices are meant to imply in like a great 1940s way that you cut bedroom scene and mm -hmm. then they're back together. But if it's there on paper, I don't know if it's there in the text of the movie for me in the way that the Ethan Grace um, escapades are in the text of the movie. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This critical nightclub sequence is also a lot of fun. As I said, felt like a real felt like a Western in a lot of ways where all of the forces are kind of converging on the OK Corral at one time where we once again see the White Widow. She is hosting a party as she did in the first, uh, the last film that we saw her in. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is where we see Gabriel and we see Paris, the Palm Clementif character, converging. Grace is there to bring one half of the key. This leads to this kind of critical sequence that is actually was a little confusing to me on first watch and on second watch, I think it was much more clear, but became about this choice that the White Widow has to make about who effectively to side with, to side with the short-term future of mm-hmm. brokering with the AI and brokering with the people who will deliver the key to the AI or siding with Ethan, who she still knows as John Lark from the right, previous sure. film yeah. and who she may or may not have banged. That's all. There's an insinuation that the White Widow and John Lark got it on, which... God, I mean, just like fucking shout out to Tom Cruise, man. It just every movie, he's like, can you cast the hottest person alive yeah. and then make it clear that they desperately want to sleep with me? Yeah. That's awesome. I, I, no <laughs> notes. I, I, so the, like, that's been true for thousands of years that that's how men want to be seen. And he's just like, fuck it, I'm Tom Cruise. Anyhow, the nightclub scene is a lot of fun. Um, and then it leads to this very intense, scary, and very also reminiscent of the first Mission Impossible film racing through the streets of a European city mm-hmm. as Ethan desperately tries to save his partners in this mission as they battle with the big bad and Gabriel. Really, really cool scene where the AI itself takes over and sort of assumes Simon Pegg's character's voice. Right, that was cool. Diverting him away from the bridge where both Grace and Ilsa have a showdown with Gabriel in what I thought was a very, very exciting and cool scene. That, to me, was where I felt the John Wick anxiety the mm. most when I, Rebecca Ferguson pulls out a giant sword and starts it's like a it's like a um it almost looks like a uh, like a sanding awl. like you know what an awl is the yeah. AWL. yeah 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 um like it's not when I was watching it a second time, it's like it's a rounded sword. It's not right. a blade. and I, I where where did she get that? What is that? i I mean, I don't know she's also is she wearing? Some sort of like party medieval whatever getup. Is it a masked ball? That, I mean, it's Venice, so I think I don't know I if mean, it's a masked. Ball. I mean, it, if it's not, then it should be because it's this an elegant is a, party. There I mean, of- well, this is a franchise about masks. You know, it's like all right there. Very good point. Um, I so I I felt like it was something just in keeping with like sort of the the very like medieval or like old setting of Venice, and it's on this like very beautiful like arched bridge. Um, but you know, that's also John Wick has been doing this sort of like old, like gothic, you know, medieval like style yeah. world for, and exactly yeah. in our architecture for a long time. So I was like, oh, okay, I get it. You you have seen John Wick. You feel like maybe a little bit of encroachment and you're trying to do your own thing. Um I think that's also evident in the brutality of the alleyway fight between yes. Ethan and Paris yeah. and him Ethan sparing Paris's life which mm-hmm. then leads to this critical moment at the end of the film. But you're right there's a yeah. a physical intensity that is not necessarily always as evident in these movies which are usually a little bit more light on their feet and like whirling dervish as opposed right. to wick which is like you just got punched in the fucking ear and it hurts. Yeah. Um I still I really really liked uh that whole execution and then that leads to 
this moment where they Grace is effectively has to join the team. She really has no other choice once the the key deal is going down on the Orient Express, which is on its way to Innsbruck. Um, and they need to find a way to get on the train. And in order to do so, they need to break out the masks. And in theory, Grace and Ethan are going to get on it together. Of course, the mask machine breaks. You know, hate when that happens. Hate when the AI gets into my mask machine. Sure, yeah. Um, and fucks it up. That's not ideal. And I just really like the sequence where Luther and Simon Pegg's character and Ethan are explaining to her like what her life is going to be now. How whatever she thought she was doing before is impossible. She really has three options. You know, one is get is die. One is effectively get captured. And the other is joining them. Be a and ghost. it's the choice to be a ghost. Um, I don't know why I, as I was watching it, I was like, this is these movies should go on forever. <laughs> we could just keep doing this and finding uh, entertaining people to bring in. But you know, Luther, of course, has been in this franchise since the very beginning, mm-hmm. and Ving Rhames is very dependable. He really is like Tom Cruise's safety blanket at this point in this movie. They share a scene shortly after this one where they're talking, and he talks about how he, you know, Luther needs to go off the map to tap yeah. into the hard drive without the AI understanding what's going on around him. And again, they're like playing some emotional heartstrings right. between these two guys. Well, but the practical re- effect of that is that then Bing Rames just disappears. We do lose him, which is not movie. ideal. Yeah. We don't lose Peg, though. And Peg actually plays a pretty funny part at the end of this movie where whilst trying to defeat AI, he's riding around in a self-driving car, which I got, <laughs> I got a huge kick out of. Um, nevertheless, Grace, even though she's the only one with a mask, agrees to go in and portray the White Widow. And she's going to stand in for Vanessa Kirby's character on the train to make this deal, to align the cruciform Mm -hmm. key and sell it to whoever the buyer is, and then also get a sense of who the buyer is and what the fate of the world is going to be. But by the same time, Gabriel and Paris are on the train. They're trying to also get their hands on the key. And then Cruz's character has to get to the train. Has to get on the train. How does he get on the train? And so for weeks, months, we've been seeing this clip of this extraordinary stunt that Tom Cruise had to execute of riding his motorcycle off of a cliff's edge, flying into the air to do what? What was he doing? We don't know. We were just like, wow, he did it. We saw this huge behind-the-scenes featurette. Loved yeah. it. Watched it like five times. Yeah. People just very, quite seriously saying like, Tom is just so focused. He's the most <laughs> focused actor we've ever seen. It's like, I, that's, I hope so. He's riding a motorcycle off a cliff. He better be focused. No, what is, he's the most aware person most I've ever met. No, not even self-aware, just oh, aware. aware. Yeah, he has an he has awareness of everything around him at all times. Tom is the most aware person I've ever met, which is just an incredible thing to say. What I liked about this though, and this is a, a case where marketing is actually a part of movie making in my mind. You, they're kind of inextricable. And so when we talk yeah. about box office or what the trailer looked like, this is all part of the game. It's a it's like a soft sell. It's a short sell on the stunt because the stunt doesn't really matter. He flies off the motorcycle and he pulls his parachute and then the action starts. Then he has to find a way whilst parachuting through the air to land on a moving train. Yeah. Which, if to your point about Messiah, that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not an achievable act. Of course it's not possible. It's impossible. That's the whole franchise. (laughs) It is the whole franchise. Uh, And then it leads to this moment where, you know, 
Finally, Grace's character is revealed. You know, the White Widow, she rips her mask off. She gets her hands on the key. She doesn't actually take the deal, but she's being confront- confronted by Zola. She's being confronted by Zola's henchman. This is the White Widow's brother. It's like, it who's looks- Zola? Zola? Yeah. It looks like she's going to be captured. It looks like the CIA is going to encroach mm-hmm. upon her. It looks like the whole world is coming down and then smash, smash into the, through that the train was car. really delightful. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Once again, Buster Keaton, you know, it's like the really house good. falling on you. And Ethan Hunt is not like, I'm here to save the day. He falls down and he's disoriented and he's like, he sees Grace. And he's like, Grace, are you okay? And he doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what's going on. Everyone's confused. And it's this like slapsticky, but also quite serious mm-hmm. culmination of the set piece that we've been anticipating if we were anticipating this movie the whole time. And the way that I just thought the way they pulled it off is really a lot of fun. No, I completely agree. This Bobby and I like basically started cheering as soon as they zoomed back to the shot of like Cruz you know, 50 feet back from behind the motorcycle getting ready to set off. (laughs) And I was just like, here it goes. And Bobby, like, I did feel like our entire theater was just like, okay, this is the moment, you know? It's like they have done, to your point, Sean, the anticipation, like, perfectly and made everyone aware. And it's like, okay, is he going to do it? And then he does it. And you're right that they quite literally stick the landing in like (laughs) an inventive, um, I guess he doesn't stick the landing and that's really funny. Yeah. um, And creative. And then also leads to a plus one set piece that I had some notes on, but also really liked. Which is what? The, I mean, the the train. Oh, the off entire the, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, that, that ultimately leads to this showdown between Gabriel and Ethan Hunt on a train car. Naturally, Ethan has the chance to kill Gabriel and he doesn't actually kill Gabriel. You know, Shea Wiggum, who every time he's on screen, I was just like, (laughs) that's my guy right there. I was just like openly cheering for him and all of his facial expressions and line deliveries. But he arrives with his partner and they effectively take Ethan in, which allows Gabriel to get away. And when Gabriel gets away, perfectly timing his fall off the train onto the back of a truck, thinking he has the cruciform key when in fact he does not, that leads to his opportunity to blow up a bridge. In classic, it's this is a bridge on the river Kwai homage in, yeah. in a major way. And the train is crossing the bridge and the train, the the engine train flies off and then each of the cars effectively slowly leans off the edge and starts to snap off and break. And this is, uh, to me, this is cinema. To yeah, me, it really to is. To me, this is, um, this is why we go to the movies is this sequence, which was just uh, breathtaking. I thought it was so fun. It was so fun. I was incredibly stressed out. It's um, Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell climbing through each car and almost falling. And, you know, and they invent new, like, obstacles in each car for them to, and, and keep upping the ante for them to avoid. There's a kitchen. Yeah. And then if the kitchen's the, on fire. The, There's a piano yeah. dangling. The only thing that I'll say is that you could see the digital uh, animation I, at some point. And I, I agree. You know, and I was like, oh, you guys came so close, and it's not really your fault. You know, I know this is just where it is right now, but, like, you you could see that. Otherwise, this would be like number one and to a Mission Impossible movie for me, for sure. I think the staging of the scene is truly amazing yes. and clever. Yeah. And the physicality that Cruz and Atwell yes. are showing and then ultimately Palm Clemente are showing in the scene is awesome. You're right, though. We're not quite there. We're yet not there. With digital animation to make something like this, which is based, it's only objects that are based in the real world. And so it just has to be accurate. Otherwise, you're going to you, yeah. you're gonna skip on it a little bit. Nevertheless, I love that scene and then that ultimately leads to their retrieval and that's when Palm Clementine's character reveals that the Sevastopol is a submarine mm-hmm. and then 
the alarm bells go off for Ethan. He's got to take the cruciform key, which he has held on to. Mm -hmm. And he needs to complete his impossible mission. And by doing so, he leaves Grace behind. Grace is confronted by Kittredge. She tells him what Ethan told her, which is that I would have a choice here. And I, I, if you choose to accept it, I choose it, to accept it, and I, I accept. And so she's a part of the mission in theory. Although I don't know if we can trust Henry Cherney going forward right. in these movies because he, of course, is one of the operatives who is attempting to acquire the key on behalf of the director of national intelligence, who wants to control the world. Right. Um, and then the movie ends on a cliffhanger. The movie ends with Tom Cruise flying around in his speed wing. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been on a speed wing? No, okay. I don't. I would not like that. Okay, Bob. Speed I liked, wing? but I liked watching him do it. I'm afraid of heights, so I will not be oh, participating I don't in think the speed I need wing. That, Bobby. I it's it's a complicated fear because I also love like roller coasters and I like the Ooh. adrenaline of them, but I don't like you know standing or being high up without being strapped in. That's my fear. Same. You're afraid of heights? Yeah. Interesting. Are you not? You seem like someone who might be. No, not at all. Like you, you seem like someone who might be like yeah. like no. man was not meant to stand. Not that at the I'm, top not, of I'm afraid mountain. of things. It's not that I'm like some masculine right. man. I just that's one that doesn't really bother well, me. Well, you're new masculine, so yeah, you're point. allowed to be afraid of things. Me, who's in the new masculine club? Me, Charles Holmes, Ethan Hunt. Who else is in there? You think Ethan Hunt is new masculine? Fuck yeah! You see the way he embraced Ilsa. Oh, I think okay. John John Wick is closer to to, to new masculine because he's a wife guy and he it's, loves his puppy. It's, it's great. Point. Wow, that is a great point. Um, I think they're both in. Okay. Okay, great. Is is Robert J. Oppenheimer in? Is he in the new masculine? Yet, yet to be seen. I haven't done my 300 hours of homework yet, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm like 150 pages into uh, American Prometheus. I don't know if I'm going to finish it. It's a 550-page book. Yeah. It's not ideal. Okay. Um, so the movie ends with this incredible cliffhanger, and I do think that a lot of people are going to be frustrated by that. Were you frustrated by no, that? No, I... I I think another credit to their marketing, and I really hate being the person who's like, great job, marketers. But in this case, you're right. It's it's part of the movies. They made it very clear. You know, they like, I know this is part one. Like the part one is in the thing. If you have consumed any media about this, you know that there's a whole other movie that Tom Cruise has been doing other things for um, for many years. You know, he's just he's never not working. On this, he might not finish it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like his masterpiece, and maybe they'll just like keep adding more and more movies. Um, so, no, I wasn't frustrated by that. I could feel the part two-ness a little bit elsewhere in the movie. Mm. You know, it feels a little like they had they had to stretch it out to make room for everything. And so, before Tom Cruise gets on the train, before he does the motorcycle jump, he's gone for a while. Yeah, And I caught myself being like, where is Tom Cruise, who I came here to see? So there are moments where I felt the decision, and I was like, oh, I would prefer if you'd done it a different way. But the ending itself, I mean, they they told me, and I listened. Okay. Bob, did you feel that at all? Did I feel like I was like, were you a let down cliff, by the... A little too cliffhung, a little too let yes. down? I mean, yes. it's like, it's a literal cliffhanger, you know? The train is falling off right. the cliff, which yeah. I, I thought was very funny. I don't think so. I, I think that... To Amanda's point, because it was so expected, I knew to sort of gear myself towards a different feeling. It's a, it's a little bit of a bummer when like the the previous six films in the franchise resolve themselves so satisfyingly, and this one it's like, what is going to happen? I'm going to have to wait a year to see this. But I don't think that I was like as offended by it as I have been with some other things that seem like they were split solely to have like a separate box office, which this doesn't really feel like it was. 
Yeah, I think it felt a little bit more like just the story got out of control. Like, like they came up with too many ideas, too many set pieces, and they were like, you know what, let's just yeah. maximize it. Yes. And then it'll be interesting to see if what you suggested comes true, which is like whether or not this is Ethan's last stand. Or, or whether he has to go underwater for like 45 minutes. I think it's safe to say he'll be going underwater to, yeah. to you know, retrieve right. the source code. For the entity from the Sevastopol Bowl. So he has to retrieve the source code? He can't destroy it underwater? I don't know. Will destroying it affect our marine life? Let's uh, consult our AI expert, <laughs> Fennessy Shaughnessy. Uh, <laughs> Fennessy Shaughnessy, what do you think? Uh, yes, that's accurate. I can destroy okay. the source code if I go down underneath the sub. Now, I have no idea. Okay. Um, I guess we're going to wait to find out in part two. Part two's next year. Is it really, though? I hope so. I mean, I hope so too, but I'm just, I can see them both being like, you know what? Got another idea. But did they film it all? Aren't they still filming it? I don't know. I feel like literally he's just constantly training for or doing stunts for these movies. I don't know. The one thing I missed in this movie was Alec Baldwin. Okay. I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed Alec Baldwin in in, (laughs) in four, five, and six. Um, I just really, I liked what he was, the energy he was bringing. He was able to deliver the ridiculous dialogue. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, Ethan Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny. Like, he can say that stuff, and you're like, absolutely he is. Good point, Alec Baldwin. Thank mm-hmm. you for being here. Uh, very few actors are able to pull off that kind of... That's true. That, that kind of a ham sandwich, you yeah. know? Like, he's really just took a big old bite. I have to say, I was also missing Henry Cavill and his mustache and his loading his own arms. And his... And ab- just his general yeah, and presence, his, like, you know? His ab- ability to wear a suit. Absurd bulk. Yeah. That yeah. plays into the absurdity of this whole situation. How do you feel about Haley Atwell's pantsuit at the in the conclusion of the film? You know, the like the vest. And yeah, it was. I I enjoyed. She's so hot. It's she's like it's so actually hot. quite yeah, unbearable. No, it's, it's really and it's hard to wear a a, a pantsuit and wear it well. You and, know, they aren't do, usually and do cut stunts it on a train. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was nice that she didn't have to do it in a dress. I like that for her. One thing I was thinking a little bit bit about in terms of people who aren't in this. Who are who have been in previous movies and aren't in this one? Is if what was Michelle Monahan's name, like the the wife's name? I can't recall. I think I would feel away if all I got uh, as as a former wife who had to go into the witness protection program and build a whole new life because my husband and all I got was like to a two word goodbye in a tent. But in, he got West, yeah. She got Wes Bentley. Yeah, but I'm just kind of like David. Like Julia Mead. Julia. Julia oh yeah. Mead. Julia doesn't even I guess she says goodbye to him sort of briefly as he's like coming out of his concussion or whatever in that tent, but then she's just gone. And it's like so many other women are just sticking around in one way or another and she's like I had to rebuild my whole life and I don't even get to haunt you for 5 minutes in Venice. Well, she wasn't a secret agent. She was just a gal. Well, neither is Grace. That's true. That's so true. That, we don't know what her yeah, fate that, is going to be. That's all I'm saying. Can I really quickly say, Amanda, you said a phrase that was really important to me just now mm-hmm. about Henry Cavill. Absurd yeah. bulk. Yes. Which I would like to put in the running for the name of me and Craig's bulk. Oh, that pod. actually is a great, that's great naming. Absurd I'll give that to bulk. you for a low fee. Yeah. However, we also have a submission from friend friend of the show, Danny Heifetz, uh, auction, auction educator Danny Heifetz, <laughs> okay. which is bulk and burn. So let's just all consider that for our, for our okay. listeners. Okay. Sounds like a Twitter poll for at BWAGS. I like absurd bulk. Absurd bulk is pretty yeah. good. Yeah, okay. Well, that's the end of this movie. Um, 
Thank God we have it. Great movie. Thank God Tom Cruise is alive and making movies. <laughs> it's really and true. If he dies and, making and, one of these movies. And making promo material and doing press tours. He looks so tired. He does. He's doing these interviews and his hair is very long. Yeah. And people are asking him confrontational questions like, what are your four favorite films of all time? And, <laughs> and he's like, And will I got you see Barbie you, or Oppenheimer first? Yes. And the answer is both. <laughs> In a crowded theater on a Friday. I'll go from one cinema to another. One eye looking one way, one yeah. eye looking the other way, watching Barbie and Oppenheimer. I Only love, Tom can do it. I love it. him so much. He's given us so much. He continues to give. Bob, you gave a lot. Have they shot Dead Reckoning Part 2 really quickly? Is That's what I was yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. know. I'm not sure. Well, I they think don't, so. Okay, we don't know. Guys, okay. you got to start reading the British tabloids because like once a month, Tom Cruise like parachutes into like some <laughs> grandmother's backyard, you know? And he's like, hello, grandmother. And then they take some photos and he's just like, he's always, always right. doing stunts in the UK. And then like Maud Huckleberry is interviewed in the Daily Mirror <laughs> no, and, and she's yes. like, and, and then and this she's broke, like, he fell right into my backyard. And he was very nice and he took several pictures with me before the helicopter landed to pick him up. Yeah. That's like a true thing that's happened. You know what that is? What? He's the most aware movie He's star. really aware. He, he's so yeah. aware. Uh, this was fun. Thank you, guys. Thanks, uh, thanks, Bob, for producing this episode. Next week on the podcast, we're not done with Mission Impossible. We actually have quite a bit more to answer. You may have been a little bit confused by this feature film, and so we will give you an opportunity to write into the mailbag. Ask us any questions you have about this film or any film mm-hmm. in the Mission Impossible franchise, and then we're we're gonna we are gonna rank the Mission Impossible movies. This is gonna that's one's gonna be interesting. Yeah, different strokes for different folks with these movies and, yeah. and what people prefer. So I I know where I stand, but this is a collaborative medium. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you say that now. That being said, I am the entity. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening to the Big Picture. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> 